Today is the first episode in a series of three where we'll cover 12 of the most common relationship crushers. We'll cover four in this episode and then four in each of the next two episodes. We call these relationship crushers the Dirty Dozen. I'm Dr. Christy Wise, and this is Life Sauce. Dr. Wise, over these next three uh, episodes, we're going to cover 12 issues that can negatively affect a relationship. But there are far more than 12. Why did you pick these 12 in particular? I chose these 12 not just because they're the most well-known or the most common, but also issues that I see come up in my office with couples over and over and over again. Okay, let's start with number one. Contemptuous or sarcastic comments? Yeah, contempt is, and this is research even shows, contempt is one of the leading causes of divorce, actually. You know, when somebody has that sarcastic, uh, passive-aggressive tone, and it begins, you know, here and there with little digs, little, um, I don't know, even jokes, sarcastic jokes, they begin to really wear on the relationship. So are those little digs signs of contempt? Is that the way that we express contempt? Yes, it show, that's how it shows up. Um, oftentimes you'll hear people say, what? I'm joking. I was just joking. She's so sensitive, you know, that sort of thing. But usually contempt is underlying resentment or frustration that hasn't been voiced or spoken about. Or the idea of a tit for tat, so we become sarcastic when we feel like we have to up the ante on our partner. But it's really toxic. So how do we monitor ourselves? How do we know that we're getting into that? Because quite often, sometimes little digs, sarcasms are part of a person's personality. They they do it with their friends. They do it with everybody. It creeps into the marriage. But in a marriage, it can become hurtful. How do we first begin to monitor ourselves? Yeah, there's a difference between um, playful banter and something that's contemptuous or sarcastic. And you'll know because it causes the hair on the back of your neck to stick up a little bit, right? Or your blood to boil. I Some people call it, it triggers you. But oftentimes it's something that's a little bit more personal or creates a little bit more of that, ugh, in, in your partner when they hear it. And, and so if I'm the receiver, if I'm the one who's, who's, you know, getting all of that from my partner, what's the best way to handle that? What do I say to my partner uh, so that it's not hurtful? Yeah. So we should talk about the idea that this for us is a red flag. And when one of us feels like we are holding back sarcasm, I'm sorry, or you're being sarcastic, that we say, okay, we need to sit down and see what's underneath it. Not the, aha, there you are being a sarcastic asshole or that's contempt, you know, but more like, okay, what's going on? What do we need to clean up? And and what do they need to clean up? I mean, we, we need to give them some guidelines so that they know specifically what to look for. So what do you tell your, your patients when they're in your office? 
so if you if you haven't listened to the episode where I talk about pee in the bathwater, this is directly related to the pee in the bathwater. So you need to go back and listen to that episode. But essentially what that it's like un communicated angst, things that have dirtied our water that we've not cleaned up between each other and it bubbles up and you hear it ooze out in relationships. How do we fix it? We sit down and say, okay, now we need to go back and we need to clean that up. I notice, for instance, that you keep taking digs that I wear sweatpants at night and they're tied in a knot. You know when she doesn't want sex because there's a knot tied in the sweatpants. Is there something going on? And she can say something like, yeah, I'm feeling fat. I'm having body image things. Or, yeah, it pisses me off because you work all day and then you come home and just want to get in my pants. So I tie them in a knot to give you the signal that I don't want sex. Do you know what I mean? We, we talk about why that's happening and what's bubbled up. If someone is doing this to their partner and demonstrating contempt. What does that mean in, with respect to how that person feels about his or her partner? Does that mean they've lost respect for that person? No, no, not at all. It, I mean, it's interesting because it's a dangerous uh, symptom that, in terms of, you know, it crushing the relationship, but it's easily, I say, easily fixable if you have the tools to communicate and the tools to clean it up. Do you find that once that starts with one person that the other one begins to do it back, give it back in in kind, and before you know it, they're going at each other night and day? Does that happen? It certainly happens, although we do have our own style of how we deal with, you know, discomfort or conflict, you know, some stonewall, some you know, are passive aggressive and go spend everything at Nordstrom because it's the half yearly sale and it's a big fuck you, (laughs) you know. But for the most part, when those sarcastic or contemptuous digs happen, oftentimes there's a tit for tat. Well, I wouldn't wear sweatpants if this man was more romantic. Ha ha ha. You know. So how do you get out of that vicious cycle? Yeah. We, well, like I said, communication, having those tools to clean it up and say, look, I realized that that was snarky and sarcastic and I apologize for that. I'd like to clean it up. Really what I'm saying is I don't know why you're shutting me down at night and I'm missing connection with you. And if I've done something to make you not feel sexy, you know know what I mean? Like talking about the real issue. Is it really that simple? Just sitting down and talking? I mean, there's got to be a way in which a a couple can get into this issue so that it's constructive, not destructive. Oh, yes. Well, first of all, knowing that that type of communication is aggressive and negative and dirties the water. So the responsibility is both on the listener and on the communicator. Both have a huge role in this experience. So if you know what you're saying is going to take a dig, then part of that is, or 50% of that is on you to say, wow, I'm having these feelings. I should probably clean it up with my partner before it oozes out of my mouth at a party. Let's imagine a scenario in which the husband has been contemptuous uh, with his wife over a period of time. She sits him down. They have that talk, yet it continues. He doesn't stop. What is that telling us? Well, it's a bad sign. It's the sign that they're not really cleaning things up. And contempt over time leaves 
marks on the relationship if it's not cleaned up. And it is one of the major attributes of divorce, of things that completely crush a relationship. Because if you're feeling like somebody's going to always take a dig at you or a stab at you, you're on guard, you're ready to punch back, or you don't ever let yourself get vulnerable and share and all of that other stuff. So it really has a long-term negative effect on a relationship. This sounds to me like uh, the, the kind of thing that uh, leads people to stray, to have affairs. Do you see that with your with your clients? Oh, gosh, yes. Can you imagine one, one partner is, or your partner's always making sarcastic comments about how you know, small your dick is or how shitty you are in bed. And then you go into the office and there's somebody who's worshiping the ground that you walk on lights up like a Christmas tree. Every time you walk into the room and, you know, has more orgasms than anybody on the face of the earth. When you guys have sex, you can see where one would be so validating, engaging, feel good to that ego and that sense of self where the other one is crushing. At, at what point is this scenario beyond repair? I think when it's gone that far, when you start taking action that is now going to leave permanent marks on the relationship and not ever have the skill to know how to clean it up, stop it, slow it down, heal it, you know, then it's just like a big snowball effect. What kind of scars does this uh, leave on the receiver? On the rec- Wow, it can leave huge scars where they lack trust, they, you know, they learn to always be in protective mode, that they don't feel good enough, that it damages self-worth and sense of self-control, it really can have a huge impact. Okay, let's get into number two, comparing your relationship to the relationship of others. Obviously, you hear that a lot because it's on your list. Tell me about that. Yeah, and this is one that people think um, is a small thing, but, you know, by nature as human beings, it's, we have the tendency to want to compare. It's why there's so much depression and upset when people go on social media, because we compare how happy her life is or how big his muscles are, or, you know, but we do that in relationships too. Look how happy they are. Look at the ring he bought her. Look at the flowers that he left behind. She's posting about how, you know, romantic her man is. And so it's very difficult for us to not want to compare our partners to other partners and what they're doing. And and we think it's some kind of a measure. The problem is, is that that measure is so small, right? It's only in what's our, our direct environment that we're kind of comparing it up against. As you began, though, you said this is just part of human nature. So that seems like a, a, a tough hurdle to, to get over. How, how do you change one's nature? Yeah, it is. You're right. It is a tough, it is a tough hurdle because it's hard for us personally to get over it, let alone as a we, like the I has a hard time getting over it. And now the we has to get over it. So there has to be, again, lots of communication about what works for us. What is our common? What is our standard? And what do we feel comfortable with? If we decide that during COVID we're going to watch movies and we both gain 10 or 12 pounds and it's okay, we're comfortable with it, that's that's our, you know, that's our jam, then that's different than saying, wow, my husband, you know, gained weight and, 
I've lost all this weight and he hasn't. There needs to be a we conversation about what's our temperature so that we can gauge it. How do you gauge that, though? I mean, what if you were instructing a client in your office today? Yeah. What are the, what are the steps they should take? So let's okay. Let's use finances as an example because finances are a source of of huge conflict for people and couples, right? So if we decide that we have a vision of traveling to Europe, having a nice car, being able to send our kids to college, whatever that is, then that's sort of our like our value. It's where we want to put our money. It's where we want to put our time and pour our assets into, you know, paying attention to those things. If we don't ever talk about it and I'm expecting that you take me on a vacation every six months and you're thinking that we go visit your family once a year, you can see that that would cause great conflict. So we have to have those conversations in the very beginning of the relationship and if you don't, then we need to certainly have them now. But what are you comfortable with? What's What lifestyle are you comfortable with? Yes, you might want, you might appreciate nicer sheets. I appreciate nicer sheets. It's the thing. And most women or lots of women appreciate nicer, nicer sheets. And he's thinking, who the fuck cares? It's just, you know, a bed condom. Why do we need to care what that is, you know? But if it means that much to me, climbing into a bed with beautiful sheets, and I express that to you, makes me feel sexy, makes me feel safe. We lie in those sheets every single night. This is why it's important to me. Can we prioritize nice sheets? You have a better understanding of what that means to me. That's very different than me going, he's a cheap bastard and just buys his sheets at Marshall's. You you know what I mean? You need to understand why I value that. And by the way, I don't have to argue about why I value it. I don't need to be right about it. It just might be what I feel comfortable or sexy in. There used to be a, a, a saying, and I don't know if it's really true or not, perhaps it is, that happiness comes when you're content with what you have. You're not always desirous any longer of what other people have. How how do you reach that stage of contentment? Yeah, yeah. It's that's a hard conversation only because some people feel like they're settling. Like, you know, on one hand, am I never am I ever going to find peace and joy in what I have, or am I apathetic and settling? And I think that there has to be a distinction between the two. I if if this is all I ever had in life, do I have what I need? What's important to me? Food, shelter, some, you know, some beauty, flowers in my yard. If those things are important to me, would I be content and comfortable? Would I be safe? All of those things. Would it meet my needs? However, if I can still strive for things, could I have more flowers? Could I have better food? Could I have... Do you know what I mean? Finding that balance of this is what works for us. This is really what my values are, but I could still strive for this. Two people in a very good relationship, let's say. They love each other. They adore each other. And they're very happy with their lives together and their their sexual lives. Um, Are those people less desirous of the physical things uh, that are out there that they see that their friends have? Hmm. That's, that's a great question. I don't know about less desirous. I think that there might be a more gratitude for what they have and where they are. If, you know, if you, 
really love your car and you appreciate it and it's clean and you, you know, you you show it gratitude. I know it sounds funny because you're showing a car gratitude, but I'm talking about the things in your life. Um, then I feel like it has more meaning. And I, I believe that as human beings, when we have meaning, we have joy and we have peace. So yeah, I think that it's more about gratitude. If, if you're comparing your lives to those of, let's say, a, a, a wealthier couple, friends of yours, they have a bigger house, they have better cars, they dress better, and you're very desirous of that, you're not likely to get to that level if you don't have the, the means with which to do that. So how do you handle that? Is there something that one of the two in the relationship can do for the other that it somehow compensates, maybe not to the level they'd really like to have, but somewhat? Is that possible? Mm, absolutely. And, and sexy, by the way, because it is. When you, without judging, you know what your partner longs for. Maybe it's beauty because, you know, like her best friend wears nicer clothes or has a better home or has, a, you know, whatever it is, a pretty garden. If what sh your partner is desirous of having that sort of thing, bringing beauty into her life because it's a value, is unbelievably sexy and romantic. And I think inspires both to stretch what they're doing for one another. Do people actually come into your office with this problem or is this just something you recognize as a phenomenon? I think they do come into this, uh, into my office as this problem. I think part of the issue is if, for instance, she has her sights on having a, you know, a 10,000 square foot home and what he's trying to do or all the little things because their 5,000 square foot home is what they've got you know, and she's not, um, taking time to again, appreciate or celebrate or value all that he does or all that he brings or all that she brings. And only the 10,000 square foot home is what's going to make her happy. Then she's missing it. And she's not going, it's like pouring water into a colander, you know, it's where you feel like you give and give and the other person just is not letting it land or taking it in. We all know couples. We all know people who, um, did well. They're very prominent. They've made a lot of money, but something has happened. Uh, illness, maybe one of them lost their jobs. Maybe they didn't recover from from uh, the pandemic financially. And now they're at a very different economic level than they were previously. Mm -hmm. Is there blame come into that? Does mm -hmm. one person start blaming the other for those circumstances? Well, y yes and no. So how the person themselves responds with that loss often sets a tone for how their partner can, you know, respond to it. So there are two things I'm thinking of. One is confirmation bias and confirmation bias is where we look for confirmation of a certain behavior and then we're proven right. It's almost like, you know, uh, trying to confirm that, rich people are snobby. And so you, you know, approach them with a certain attitude and then they act snobby and you go, aha, see, they're snobby. So if what you're feeling is bad about what you've lost and you're feeling guilty and shame and embarrassment, and you've not dealt with the loss, you're going to look in your partner for proof that you have reason to feel shame. And if you're acting a certain way, 
your partner will respond a certain way and then we confirm, aha, see, I knew you were unhappy. Do you understand? So there's confirmation bias. The other one is self-fulfilling prophecy. Sometimes we create that which we fear the most, right? We tend to either run away from fear and try to run towards joy or stay in joy and avoid fear. And when we feel that, I don't know, that snag in between, we react. Of course we do because we're human. So yes, I know I'm going all over the place with it, but it is because it's such a psychological mind fuck at that point when you have something and you lose it. So yes, that's, that's the person who's experienced it. And now their partner on the receiving end is going, okay, what do I do? And can there be resentment? Absolutely. There can, like you used to provide this. We used to feel safe. There used to be security. We need to then look at what is it that's most valuable. Is it the security that they've lost? Then we need to be able to create some security for them. Can a couple recover from this, Dr. Weiss? Absolutely. Absolutely they can. There's no question. Do they need to be able to pivot? Do they have to be pliable? You know, absolutely. Just as much as when they were, you know, first in a relationship and they saved up all their change to buy pizza or, you know, to go to Europe, they saved their change for two years. And then all of a sudden now they have money. They pivoted and they got used to a nicer lifestyle. We have to be able to pivot in our relationship. Let's move on to number three of our relationship crushers. You just aren't friends anymore. Can you ever have a successful relationship if you stop being friends? No. Well, I do believe that that's one of the major crushers because we we allow things with our friends. We do things for our friends that we often don't do with our romantic partners. You know, my Italian grandmother used to always say to me, Christy, it's easy to get rid of a lover. It's hard to get rid of a friend. And I believe that's the truth. And that's why it is one of our dirty dozen. That is why it's one of our relationship crushers. Because when we lose that friendship, we're relying on just the romantic part of it or the financial part of it. And that stuff comes and goes. You know what I mean? It ebbs and flows. How do you define friendship in a relationship versus love? Mm. Well, I I do think it's a form of love. It's like companionate love. It's when you feel like you can be more companions and it's not just based on sex or any of those things, but it is that I allow space or freedom for my friend in this relationship to be all the things that they are. It's we, we, we are more permissive of their flaws and more accepting of their mistakes than we are in someone who's just a romantic relationship. After you get to that point that you don't feel like your, your significant other is a friend no more, is that ever recoverable? And if so, how do you go about doing that? Mm. Well, it depends on the relationship some, and it depends on their culture and their values and why they were in the relationship in the first place. Some people are in arranged relationships or married for a specific reason. And if that's the case, then mazel tov, then that's what they're doing. You know what I mean? But if they're wanting depth, if they're in it for the long haul and love and companionship and partnership, 
then it is hard to recover and that friendship needs to be rebuilt. Now, friendship is not the only thing because sometimes people end up just as friends and they lose the love or the passion, the sexiness. So I'm not saying it has to be all friendship, but I am saying that friendship is the foundation for stuff that gets you through a lot of the hard times. And, you know, not, not, like, you know, like we were talking about before, if you lose all your money oftentimes, and that's what the relationship is based on, then what do you have left? So a lot of times what we lean on is the fact that we're best friends and we get through hard times together, that we have each other's back. So many couples, particularly younger couples, get into relationship and it's based on lust initially. Um, they haven't been together long enough to to really become friends that happens over time. And so is part of the problem here the fact that um, people in our culture get married too easily and, and too quickly? Yes. Getting married too quickly is one, not one of my crushers, but it does crush a relationship. Um, but I also think there's one other component that we haven't discussed that I think is important. That is the way that the world is now with, and I know that sounds old, <clears throat> with social media, dating online, we are not um, as equipped to develop depth in a relationship as easily as you swipe on and swipe off of people. You can see why it'd be so easy just to move on. If you've only had 12 texts, it's not so easy to get, I mean, it's easy to get rid of somebody, but if you've had 12 major experiences with somebody, you know, you got a flat tire, you got stuck on after a flight and had to sleep in the airport together. If you've had 12 really meaningful experiences as opposed to 12, you know, texts, you can see where there would be depth in the relationship. So yes, getting married too soon. Yes, not having the time and experience, but I think those memories and those experiences are imperative in the relationship. It's it's also what strengthens the friendship, getting through stuff together. So what do you advise your clients when they come into your office in terms of how specifically to, to work through this problem? I know I can't change the fact that we date online and that we swipe left and swipe right and all that stuff. However, when you are in that relationship, put down your fucking phones and go and make some memories together. I don't care what it is. Again, remember how I talked about there's running away from fear and there's running to pleasure. Go and try something new that feels scary together. Go and experience pleasure together. Whatever it is, it is imperative that you guys are making memories together often. That's, people say, oh, we go on date night, but not if you're going to go eat at a restaurant, be on your phone and talk about work. That's bullshit, right? I want you guys like out and getting dirty together. Um, I, I asked this question earlier in, in this segment about whether or not uh, this is a recoverable problem. And what I'm really asking is, can you become friends again after losing that friendship? Or if you were never really friends in the first place in that relationship, can you become friends? Absolutely. And it's really fun, actually, to reconnect as friends, to get to know each other today, not who you were, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago or 20 years ago when you first met. It, that friendship can evolve and strengthen. Again, we talked about pivot before. I'm talking about pivot now. We sometimes have to 
evolve as friends too, and not just expect that friendship to be what it was when you were, you know, in college or what you used to be like as a friend. We change and the friendship has to change too. So yes, the friendship can be a new one. It could be a deeper one. It could be a stronger one, more substantial for sure, but it does take the try and the care. We know that, um, our audience runs the entire gamut of, of socioeconomic classes um, in this country. And, and so many uh, couples, so many families are working two and sometimes three jobs. They've got a bunch of kids they're trying to raise and, and get through school. And life is difficult for them. How do you find friendship inside that construct? Yes. And it's very realistic uh, because you're right. Most people, most of all of us are working our ass off and raising kids and doing all of those things. This doesn't have to be something that takes hours out of your day or hours out of your week. It can literally be not just a, Hey, what's up text, but a more, you know, a screenshot of what your you know, sister wrote and, you know, in a text and you both laugh over or inside joke or, you know, a, I think it's very sexy. If you want to, you know, do the sexy thing, you guys go grab dinner, but you take off your underwear and put them in his pocket. That takes two seconds. It doesn't cost a dime. Do you know, you want to go to the beach here in San Diego, we have Lax Beach. Take off your bathing suit and dive in the ocean together. You know, like up the ante, stop being passive about it and up the ante so that it's more quality instead of quantity. I suppose to be able to do that, you've got to be motivated. And so many people are just too bloody tired to add this other component to their life. What What's the outlook for those couples? Yeah, they can be tired. I understand that. You know, uh, what I don't is the... Um, passive uh, lack of responsibility in taking charge of the relationship because there is nothing more important. There really isn't. I mean, you'll, you'll lose everything. You can gain it. Money is just money. You know what I mean? But the one thing that you're going to regret, and this is the truth, when people are dying, this is, they regret the things they didn't do, not the things they did do. So if you guys are tired together, be tired together. Lay on the carpet and look at the ceiling. Go lay out in the grass together and hold hands. Cry together. Get in the shower together. Do you know what I mean? Like even in your pain or your exhaustion or your remorse or your shame, you can still be there together. Is it really that, that simple? I'd like to think that it is, but does yes. that work? Yes, it totally works. You'd be shocked at asking Two adult people to go lay in their backyard in the rain and just let the rain fall on them and be in silence is the most beautiful, sexy, bonding thing you can ever imagine. And again, doesn't cost a fucking dime. And they've just had a brand new and somewhat exciting experience together. Oh, it's so... I, I Honestly, if you've never done it, go do it. Winter is coming. I would suggest if I had a... a magic wand and you did it my way, you would get naked and you'd lay out there in the grass. Unless your neighbors can see you, I understand. Because there's something that's very visceral about being that exposed together out in weather. I mean, it's really beautiful. But if you're afraid kids are there or neighbors can see you, that's okay. But go and try it. 
And if you don't like it, then email me and tell me how it wasn't, you know, then I'll probably want to know the details. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to our fourth and, and final relationship crusher for this episode. You play the blame game. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you play the blame game in arguments. Yes. First of all, I'm going to kind of break this down into smaller bits. The person who is constantly blaming the other is doing what? What's going on inside that person's head? Yeah. Denial, avoidance, right? Um, lack of responsibility, fear of being judged, which is a big one. Is Is this a person who perhaps has low self-esteem, um, feels inadequate in many areas, and is trying to tear down his or her partner to build himself up. Yeah, and it could be, yes, low self-esteem, low sense of self-worth, tearing other people down so you feel bigger. It could also be childhood things, right? If you were only taught that when you got the right answer, you were loved and celebrated, and when you got the wrong answer, you were punished and shamed, you can see as an adult why it would be so hard to admit wrong. I mean, it becomes part of your fabric, right? So, yeah, there's there's some work that needs to be done there. Why do people do that in the in the first place? I mean, I, I would think that if they were doing that through their dating relationship, perhaps they never would have gotten married. It seems to be something that happens after the relationship has begun in some respect. Yeah, yeah. I always say our our our. The good representative shows up while we date. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we send our representative while we're dating. We're on our best behavior and, you know, look good in white jeans and all that stuff when you're dating. And then I don't know what happens. We kind of let it go and get lazy or a thousand other things. But um, as time goes by and that tit for tat, the contempt that we talked about sets in. But the also, you know, looking for fault in your in your partner, ah, nah, I did buy that last time I went to the store, you know, those sorts of things. And the fragile ego that says, you know, I might, you might not think I'm all that. You might really see who I really am. And what if you don't love me? If you see that I'm flawed and I'm going to be abandoned then or rejected then. So I'm going to fight tooth and nail for you to be wrong and for me to be right. And how do you get past that? Mm. Well, I, I point it out immediately. I, I, I let them know there's no trophy in the end. Or if I'm in a bitchier mood and it's been all day, I'll say there's a trophy waiting for you at the door. Make sure you grab it on your way out. You know, because the question is, what is it that you think you'll win? And how does that make your partner feel? If we were to do a role play and I was you and you were me and I got to make you dirty and wrong and bad and all that stuff... What would that feel like? How would it land? And what would your reaction then be to me other than to blame me right back so that you can level yourself up and it becomes this, you know, um, what do people say? Oh, I'm very competitive. That's not competitive. It's contemptuous and it's the tit for tat because you're fragile. Unfortunately, I've, I've seen this too many times yeah. in in my friends and uh, acquaintances, and I always think to myself, and, and it's usually the the husband who's doing it. <clears throat> sounds sexist, but that nope. typically is the case. Um, and he's blaming his wife for something, and I get the feeling 
that he is trying to improve his stature mm. in her mind. Yet, in fact, it does the opposite. And if he took more of a hero approach, mm. he would gain stature in her mind. Now, that's my yeah. psychology <laughs> 101 class from college many years ago. Is that even close to being accurate? Oh, it's so accurate. Besides the fact that the hero position is safe and romantic, and I don't mean enabling and all that codependent. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about just taking that hero, you know, letting your partner have the wiggle room, you know, embracing where your partner is and where you are. Yes, that hero uh, position is so much more sexy and vulnerable. And the minute you're that, your partner is also vulnerable. And you're exactly right. Trying to increase one's value or position in the relationship has the opposite effect and is such a turnoff, you know. And I think it's also because we think that we are so um, hidden. Like, you know, we're so much more transparent than people realize. We think that we're arguing over something because we look good and we're so much more transparent than we realize. Let me jump the fence here and be sexist on the other side. I know many, many couples. <laughs> I seem to know a lot of <laughs> strange and weird people um, in, in which the wife is constantly bitch biting, nagging mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And I, I see two different reactions from that, depending on the couple. Some husbands just smile. They go with it. They're docile about the whole thing. Uh, with others, uh, I, I see them you know, getting up on their hindquarters and really uh, digging into that, and, and a huge argument ensues. Um, I'll ask the question in a very sexist way. Why, why do women nag and, and, yeah. and bitch bite? Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I hear the sexism in that, but I agree with you. I do. I think that because we use more words also <laughs> per conversation, uh, which is hysterical, but we really do. Um, but I, I believe that it's because we're not equipped to ask for what we need, say how we feel and ask for what we need. And it's, um, we misrepresent ourselves. So when we're, you're first courting me and if we're going to take this sexist kind of conversation, I want you to know that I can, you know, nest, that I can provide a safe, comfortable, warm home that you come into after work with your martini. All of a sudden I thought, I thought it'd be witch. I was playing the role, by the way. Yeah, I totally get it. And I went with the dress and the shoes in my head, but that's a whole different topic. Anyway, so yes, I can create that. And after a while you don't light up or you don't notice that the dinner is wonderful or the house looks clean or there's always fresh flowers on the table and I feel unappreciated or you throw your shit on the desk chair after I've cleaned whatever, the house, and I'm feeling like you don't value me. Instead of saying, boy, you walk through the door and I don't feel important or that you value what I do for our home and for our family, and it scares me because I'm afraid that you won't really appreciate me. And and that hurts me. I need you to take a second to be home with me and see what I've done, what I've created for us. And likely the other partner would go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I love that that 
meatloaf or those flowers or the martini or whatever, whatever it is. And I'm not, again, I mean, it could be any role. It could be whatever gender you want to be in that, you know, if that's the, I'm the one that cooks dinner, you're the one that grocery shops, it doesn't matter. But when we stop, um, saying how we feel and asking for what we need, do you know, it's like, do you remember that the blowjob conversation? I, I, I said a few episodes back where he makes a joke and says, ah, you know, or she says, go ahead, tell Dr. Wise, what did you say? And he's like, what? I said, you feel like sucking my dick. And she says, would you suck his dick if he asked like that? Do you remember that conversation? And, you know, and I say, well, no, but if I said, when you give me oral, when you drop to your knees, when I walk through the door, I feel sexy and wanted and valued and alive. That makes me feel like I want to give it right back to you. That's different. That's a whole different communication. And that's what we're talking about here in terms of arguments. I'm not saying how I feel. I'm not asking for what I need. I'm just going on the surface. You left your fucking, you know, dishes in the sink again. It's one thing when they, when they are doing this uh, in their homes behind closed doors. Why do so many couples feel they need to do this to each other in public or at yeah. parties and with friends. Yes. And boy, I'm talking about contempt and comparisons. Imagine if you were going out to dinner with another couple and the waitress, you know, the, one of you was rude to the waitress and your partner said, turned to you and said, are you going to say thank you to her? Right in front of the whole table, the resentment and how, you know, passive aggressive and, and passive aggressive, excuse me, and contemptuous that is, shaming that is, how little your partner would feel. It's, it's, it's because it's built up so much that now you're punishing your partner by displaying it, you know, for the public, for your environment to see. It's such a form of shaming. There seems to be, uh, as we wrap up this episode, a common denominator among these first four in in terms of fixing these problems. And it seems to have to do with communication first Mm -hmm. and really spending quality time with each other so that you find your relationship at a different level in which you never want to do these things to your best friend again because you understand it's so hurtful. Absolutely. And yes, you, you wrapped it up beautifully. The last thing I'd like to add is, and the, be in touch with how you feel. You know, we expect our partner to be so in touch with how they feel, but yet we don't. And so if you're just like with your friend, if your friend hung up on you without saying goodbye, you'd call her back or call him back and say, dude, you didn't say goodbye. And she'd go, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I love you. Have a good day. And you go, I love you. Have a good day. But with our partner, we just go, huh? and then we hang up fast the next time they call us, you know, so be in touch with how you feel. So we've covered the first four of the dirty dozen relationship crushers. Uh, four more will drop in next week's episode on Monday. Thank you, Dr. Wise. Thank you. For more information or to submit a question, go to our website, lifesauce.com. That's life-sauce.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media. I'm Dr. Christy Wise. Thanks for joining us.